Word on Health, the report with its finger on the pulse of popular medicine with Paul Pennington. Word on Health, for your very best of health. According to data published in the Food and Nutrition Journal, 47% of us have experienced gut-related health issues. Yet, studies show more than 42% of us never think of our gut health. Julie Thompson joins me from the charity Guts UK. Julie, when we talk about poor gut health, what do we mean? Doctors generally define poor gut health as having symptoms. Diarrhea, constipation, a mixture of both, or belly pain, or bloating, or blood in poo, and difficulty in pain in opening the bowel. These are all things that signify something's happening. What impact can poor gut health have? It's important for everything, really. And when it goes wrong, it can really impact on people's quality of life. So it is vital. Guts UK did a survey. We asked people what impacts having a digestive condition or digestive symptoms had. And half of people feel their condition affects their emotional health. And there's a recognised relationship with mental ill health and digestive poor health. And there's good evidence to support the fact that people with poor mental health have poorer physical health. Other examples, two in five people report digestive conditions have a high or high impact on their day-to-day activities. And three in 10 people feel the digestive condition has a high impact on employment. And if you're encountering symptoms, it's important if they do persist to get help. People should contact the doctor if they're having symptoms. More than three weeks, I think, the NHS states. The information we have from Guts UK is people do wait too long. 50% of people wait six months or more. And actually, a third of those wait over 12 months. And that's a long time to put up with these symptoms. Pharmacists are a very good, useful resource. Although I would caution people, these simple over-the-counter medicines don't seem to be working at all. That is absolutely an indication to talk to your doctor. Outside of those of us who've been diagnosed with gut health conditions and will have specific guidance on how best to manage them, alongside getting enough exercise, moderating our alcohol intake and not smoking, there are simple steps that we can take to avoid some of the most common problems such as constipation, heartburn and the symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome through our diet. Let's talk them through. The first being to fill up on fibre. The NHS advised that we all should have 30 grams a day. So whole grains, wholemeal bread, wholemeal pasta, brown rice, beans and pulses as well are another good source of fibre. We should be aiming for at least five small handfuls of fruit and vegetables per day. Specific advice for people who might have irritable bowel syndrome. A lot of people with IBS do have problems with wheat bran and whole grain wheat products. If somebody's in that situation, oats have some evidence that it can reduce bloating. Rice-based pastas that are whole grain will be a good option. So don't miss out on the fibre swap to an alternative if you do have a problem with wheat. We should also ensure we're getting enough fluid, shouldn't we? Really important for gut health. If somebody doesn't get enough fluid and they start to increase the fibre intake, that in itself can cause constipation. The general advice is six to eight cups of fluid Today. The best fluid is water. Certainly things like dilutable sugar-free juice are fine. Tea and coffee is fine. Some people with digestive problems might have an issue with caffeine. So in that situation, just swap over to non-caffeinated varieties. 
I understand cutting down on fat can also aid gut health. Chips, burgers, fried food can be more difficult to digest and they can cause stomach pain. They can be a cause of heartburn. So cutting down on those can be really useful. Eat more lean meat, fish, drink skimmed or semi-skimmed milk and grill rather than fry foods. We're more adventurous than ever in what we eat, but I understand we should go easy on spicy food to avoid tummy trouble. Many people love eating spicy food and it doesn't necessarily bother them at all. Others find that they get a tummy upset when they have spicy food. And it's not just the hot foods such as chilies that trigger heartburn. Sometimes milder flavoured foods like onion and garlic can also bring it on. And if you have had a problem like heartburn or irritable bowel syndrome, it may be better to avoid them completely. And we should be aware of gut health symptom triggers. Some people find particular foods cause them problems and it is individual. Sometimes it's quite difficult to figure out what it is that's actually causing that. Keeping a food diary to work it out can be quite helpful. How useful are the various digestive supplements that are available? I would caution people in taking supplements for gut health or if they have a gut condition contact either their doctor you can speak to the pharmacist to get advice on these things it's important because these supplements can sometimes interact with other medications that people are taking so definitely get that advice from somebody who's qualified foods infused with probiotics live bacteria and yeasts are claimed to be good for our digestive health but as dr linda thomas a scientific consultant in probiotics explains it's not as straightforward as it would seem i think a probiotic can really help general health as well as gut health but there are problems with public's understanding. One reason is one size doesn't fit all. Probiotics are different. They don't all act the same. They don't all do the same things. And also there are very good laws protecting the public from misleading health claims. And they cover probiotics, which are considered foods or food supplements. And even the word probiotic is considered a health claim. So what you will see on the shelves is a lot of confusing live microorganisms and you won't understand which is a good quality one or which has the appropriate science for the condition you're looking for or just is generally a quality probiotics. It's very difficult for the public to understand that. Go for the big names, go for the ones that are labelled correctly and you might have more chance of getting a good quality probiotic which, you know, according to the definition, must be live. Quality control is another issue, something that's been on the shelf too long. Is it really still alive? So, yeah, you need reassurance and it's difficult to find that information. Dietitians in particular know a lot more about probiotic research than many people and get advice from them. Moving back to you, Julie, I know one of the things that can indicate how healthy our guts are is what comes out of them. And you've launched a mechanic on your website that can help. This is a tool that we developed last year as a tutorial for poo. The poo tutorial shows you what normal stools should look like. It's important for us to check to find out what's happening on a day-to-day basis. Then we know when things go wrong, that's the time to contact the doctor. My grateful thanks to my guests. To find out more and link through to Guts UK, log on to our website, www.wordandhealth.com. That's www.wordandhealth.com. Word on Health, on air and online 52 weeks of the year. Word on Health, your personal prescription for your very best of health.
named after Queen Victoria's doctor, Sir James Paget, who discovered it in 1877, this month we're being asked to be more aware of Paget's disease of the bone that's rare in the under-50s but fairly common, particularly in older people. According to the NHS, the UK has the highest prevalence. Stuart Rolston, an Edinburgh-based professor of rheumatology and chair of the Padgett's Association, explains what happens in our body that starts this chronic bone disorder. Normally, our bones throughout life are renewed and replaced at a very steady rate so that the bones remain healthy. And what happens in Padgett's disease is this renewal and replacement goes a bit wrong. The process becomes accelerated, not throughout the whole skeleton, but specific bones like, say, the hip bone or maybe the tibia, the shin bone. And the bone can become painful, it can enlarge, and even it can become weakened and break. And so that's what Paget says. It's this abnormal renewal and repair process that causes the bones to become painful most often. Professor Ralston, do we know what causes Paget's disease of the bone? That is a good question. It's incompletely understood, but we know that what's called genetic factors or inherited factors play a role. And in the clinic, I'm quite commonly seeing patients that maybe their father or uncle had Paget's disease and they're also affected. So there is definitely an inherited factor. However, also we think that environment is important. And I say that because if we look at changes in the frequency of Paget's disease over, let's say, the past 50 years, it's become less common and probably less severe. The reason for that isn't entirely clear. There's a lot of theories. One theory that I think may be relevant is that perhaps nutrition is better nowadays. Vitamin D deficiency isn't so common. People are taking a better diet. And I think that probably plays a role in the lesser severity and less frequency. But there's a lot of research going on to try and find that out. I understand it can be present in people for 10 to 15 years before it causes a problem. What are the signs and signals to look out for? The most common would be pain. If, say, Paget's was affecting the shin bone, they might notice there's a bit of pain there or the hip or the back. What they can also sometimes notice is that the bone bends a little. And I can recall certainly a few patients where it's affected their shin bone and they've noticed maybe pulling on a boot or a shoe that their bone is a bit bent. So that can bring patients to medical attention too. On presentation to GP with bone pain, an ALP blood test can help provide a clue as to whether a patient needs referring on for specialist help. And I know your association has been working to help raise GP awareness of Paget's disease of the bone. Once you're through to a specialist, where are things at with regards to treatments? The treatment for Paget's is pretty good. There's two or three drugs. They belong to a class of drugs called bisphosphonates. And these drugs are used in osteoporosis and other bone diseases. Is there anything that we can do to prevent the onset of Paget's disease of the bone? The trick is, is finding out, am I at risk of Paget's disease? And kind of knowing about it perhaps before it's caused symptoms. The association and research are doing a study just now just about to report where we're looking at people who have a family history and we've offered them a genetic test to see if they might be at increased risk then if we think they are then they can have what's called a bone scan which is a very sensitive way of detecting Paget's disease and then perhaps offering them treatment so that is a research project at the moment but as I say the results will be out this year and it could be that's something that might be rolled out in clinical practice in years to come. My grateful thanks to Professor Stuart Rolston. To find out more and to connect through to the Padgett's Association, log on to our website, www.wordandhealth.com. That's www.wordandhealth.com. 
Word on Health. On air and online 52 weeks of the year with Paul Pennington. Word on Health. Your personal prescription for your very best of health. 